This is the fifth Sunday after Epiphany, and we continue in this green time after Epiphany to think and reflect through the biblical witness the ways and the means to make manifest the presence of Christ to the world. So the readings again today are about uh, all aspects of that in some way. When we think about making manifest, sometimes a, you know, a preacher says something like that. So how could, in one sense, you understand it? You could understand it as uh, sort of a missionary uh, way of doing things, commending your greatest place of safety and assurance. You could understand it from the standpoint of advocacy, being on the side of those things that are godly and righteous. You could think about it as being a way of, um, through generosity and through self-giving, to be part of the doing of good works in the world. So all of these things get talked about uh, in the Sundays after Epiphany, and the focus certainly from Isaiah and from the Gospel uh, is on making manifest by the self-giving and understanding ourselves to be instruments of the generosity and the abundance of God's presence. So I want to start by saying a word about the book of the prophet Isaiah and a little 3995 stuff here so that you know most biblical scholars, at least of the kind that Episcopalians rely on, uh, believe that... uh, there are at least three Isaiahs, or perhaps a school of Isaiah. And the reason we say that is because the, the time in history, the chronology of what is talked about in the book of the prophet Isaiah uh, spans over 250 years or, or more. So it would be hard to believe that one individual wrote this prophetic book themselves or Uh, uttered these prophecies and had them taken down by uh, maybe a secretary who also lived as long. So uh, today, first Isaiah uh, is in Jerusalem, let's say about 738 B.C., maybe to 710. And his prophecy is about how the behavior of the people Uh, is going to get them in hot water, and perhaps we might be looking right in the face the possibility of an invasion by the Babylonians, as an example. So that we need to be careful about how we understand ourselves and to once again get back to uh, rededicating ourselves to the promises of God and understanding ourselves to be part of God's plan for the cosmos and to understand what it means to be the people of God. And then second Isaiah comes in the middle of the exile, in Babylon. So this prophetic utterance, these utterances are about, well, here we are. We got ourselves into this jam up, and here's what's happened. When would this be? Oh, maybe sometime around 540 B.C. And then today, we hear from third Isaiah, Or if you really want to amaze your friends, you could call it Trito Isaiah, and they would go, whoa. (laughs) Trito Isaiah goes from about like 538 to 510. And it's about, we're back now in Jerusalem. There's been return from exile. 
how do we understand in personal and community terms the whole issue of being alienated and lost, now back and restored, or beginning to think about what the nature of restoration is, and how do we think about this kind of healing and wholeness, and how should we behave, both corporately and individually, uh, as we think about things. So this reading from Third Isaiah follows on the heels of the reading from Micah last week that concluded with... O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your gods? It's a famous passage from the Hebrew Bible. And so today we have a rather long reading. It's it's sufficiently long that probably you were getting about 10% of it, you know, the wandering around and stuff. But what's embedded in this reading is The people in Jerusalem, the people of Israel, God's people, are somehow to make manifest the presence of God through worthy works and through generosity, the generosity with which they treat one another. Loosing the bonds of injustice, the reading says. Undo the thongs of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. So we figure that in some way we're to exercise this kind of generosity. Uh, And it says here, there's a line that says, do not hide yourself from your own kin. It means to look after your family. You know, whenever I talk about stuff like this, I say this over and over again, I worry that a lot of you think, well, I've got to be in some big cause, I've got to join some organization, I've got to do some kind of a thing, some kind of a heroic thing to do good works. I hope some of you do. I'm always so impressed by how many of you do this uh, with things outside the church, which is as it should be. And to see that it is important that you make a difference in uh, giving yourself to these programs and opportunities that exist in the wider society. But sometimes I think that we uh, give short shrift to uh, the generosity and the extension that we manifest to those nearest and dearest. You know, some people, young people with families and with obligations and responsibilities and work, they're just simply not in the position to be able to do this. There are some who have an extraordinary amount of energy and who somehow have a a fire burning in the belly, and they want to do this kind of stuff. But, you know, most of us have to see the opportunities where they are. And so what this passage from Isaiah is about has something to do with making manifest God's generosity within those nearest and dearest to you. And sometimes uh, we treat those we love the most the worst. And that's probably the least uh, palatable thing uh, about the way in which we live. You know, 
guys like me who, who are in this line of work uh, are often accused of having something called a messiah complex. You know, spend a whole lot of time out there doing this, and the family... So this is a passage about looking after your own kin, at least it says there, as, one, as, as part of this. My point is, is that we need to think about this both in terms of dreaming dreams, the grand aspiration and ideals that all people can and must have to move society forward, but also that we make that manifest in ways that are not so grand all of the time, in the ordinary and in the commonplace. Each of it, there was a wonderful book that was written a number of years ago by a woman named Catherine Bateson called Composing a Life. She was Margaret Mead's daughter. You know, the anthropologist? Margaret Mead was an Episcopalian. Catherine Bateson talked about having to, tra she had an academic career, and her but uh, they did a lot of traveling around and had their families, and they had to go places, and, and uh, often the women in the family are the ones that are responsible for when you're in a new place, you need to compose the life, right? Composing a life while we're out and about. So she talked about how you do that and what's involved in that, and it was a reminder of, uh, you know, all of the quotidian day-to-day -day things uh, that are part of um, being centered in God. I think that's where most of us meet God, is in those things. You know, Brother Lawrence in that famous little passage, a pamphlet, The Practice of the Presence of God. Mother Teresa of Avila saying, If you find yourself in the kitchen, among the pots and the pans, then you've got to find God amongst the pots and the pans. So this great prophetic utterance from Third Isaiah can be given a huge um, uh, meaning in terms of the great and grand ideas before human beings, and it should, but at the same time it's embedded in the text as an important little thing. If you pay attention to the ordinary and the commonplace, you can be centered in God. Dean Parsons, the old-fashioned dean, he wasn't a terribly humorous man and wasn't very good dinner company, the first dean of this, my seminary when I was there. But um, he used to talk to us in class about the duties of state, an old-fashioned term for get up and brush your teeth, you know, attend to the ordinary and the commonplace. So making manifest might have something to do with that. And the prophet Isaiah says something to us about it. Now the reading from 1 Corinthians is probably the best, I would entitle it, uh, Obstacles to Making Manifest the Presence of God. Because <laughs> that's what Paul is talking about. Paul is uh, speaking to the Corinthian congregation, a group of self-satisfied, smug uh, believers in their own wisdom and in their own, the efficacy of their own outlook and their own prejudices. You know, this kind of thing cuts completely across any spectrum of liberal or conservative. It is with all of us in some form or another. 
And people who believe it, it, that they're uh, really on top of things, or even if they're having little time, that their own superior uh, smarts and efforts are going to get them uh, straightened out. It's good to have self-confidence, to be sure. Did you read the other day a study that was uh, done in, uh, in this country about uh, kids in school? We're doing, we're doing a terrible job compared to many. I think we're down in the 40s now or something in terms of people's, uh, you know. The one thing our children are not short on, one of the thi their number one is self-esteem. <laughs> We've done a wonderful job, haven't we, recent with self-esteem, you know. Sometimes... A little low self-esteem might not hurt. There's another thing I've been reading about. I'm, I can't preach on all this stuff today. But there's, there's a book called uh, Something About the Tiger Mother. You heard about this? Hi, Right? So now we have, we have a, uh, quite a situation, and I, I got sent a whole bunch of stuff, a review of the book, and then there's a new one in the New Yorker magazine, a new review of this book, and then some articles by other non-Tiger mothers who let their kids have sleepovers and say it might be okay to learn an instrument other than the piano or the violin. <laughs> right? So Paul is talking about this kind of thing. There's a more pernicious side to it in our culture, and it was probably true then. And I, it's, Nancy gave me a book for Christmas called Denialism. It's written by a man who uh, is, is writing, has chapters like The Organic Fetish, uh, The World of Echinacea, <laughs> right? Now, now, here's the thing. Uh, religion has got a bad name in our culture, and most people think that what we do is ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. And they will marshal all kinds of historic and scientific information about why it's ludicrous and so on and so forth. And people who would consider themselves to be on the more critical and liberal side of that particular point of view will, in spite of the fact that there is absolutely no scientific information that would indicate it to be so, take vitamins. <laughs> right? So you say, here's a, here's a study, 17 studies that tell you fish oil, vitamin, none of this stuff, it doesn't do anything. If you eat properly and regularly, you'll get everything you need. Well, that's what you say. <laughs> right? That's what we do. So I'm taking one anyway. <laughs> no matter what you do. There was a study in Denmark that's, that gave people to eat organic produce and also gave them to eat the produce you get at the Safeway to eat it. Then they took blood tests to say, did the organic food minerally, chemically, and other ways, uh, get, did you get the benefit of more of it, the good for you, and did the other stuff give you less of it? And the answer is no. It did not. 
You know what the difference between organic produce and non-organic produce is? It tastes better. And that's why we grow tomatoes and we grow our own vegetables and we do this stuff. It tastes better. Because we're not trucking it from the back of beyond to get into the market. But in terms of it being an objectively net benefit to your health, there's no scientific information that would suggest that it is. See? Now, these are people who don't believe in God and think the Bible's full of myth and a whole lot of stuff who are, you know, going all over the place to get organic produce. You know, I do. See? So I read this stuff and I'm going, oh, well, that's what you say. <laughs> See? You know? This is what Paul is contending with here. Now, he may be kind of going over the moon and he's a little convoluted in his commentary and so forth. The focus, of course, uh, at another time of the year in Lent, for example, when these readings come up, we talk about the cross of Christ and his sort of Christian anthropology, what he thinks is uh, what's produced uh, our redemption. But what he's really trying to do is to say a lot of people have come in here in my absence and they've said, well, that's what Paul says. And so what I'm going to, Paul feels duty-bound in some way to defend his apostleship and to speak with some degree of integrity. And here's what he's driving at. He is driving at something that you and I can hold as people of faith, uh, an important thing on a daily basis. And that is that each one of us are a repository for the Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And we perceive and understand the presence and the power of this spirit, not through always religious experience, not through some revelatory experience or visions, but through the ordinary and the commonplace. That's why I always say to you that spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, mental soundness has something to do with becoming the best human being that you can be. And it's godly because each one of us is made in God's image and unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven. So Paul reminds us that uh, while we have good intentions and we want, uh, may, some of us at least, want to make manifest the presence of God, uh, there are obstacles. And some of it is our own stubbornness or our own sense of uh, an unreasonable uh, sense of self, not the right kind of self-regard. In the Gospel today from Matthew, we have the continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Sermon on the Mount goes from the beginning of chapter 5 for a couple of chapters. It's an extended teaching by Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. And the Matthean version is tinctured with the Gospel writer's desire to make his own emphases for his own community. So the Jesus that has now spoken the Beatitudes and pronounced the blessed states that exist for each of us when we do these things is making a transition to what he'll take up, begin next week, and that's ethical teaching as a counterpoint to Moses for, for Matthew. 
So here's what Jesus is doing, and this for Matthew is an important aspect of his earthly ministry and how Matthew and his community understood Jesus' redemptive work in the world. In his teaching, he seeks to distance himself from the religious leadership of his day in a very important area. There's more than one, but in this particular context, he's interested in saying, you know what, we're spending way too much time and have as Jews on the future. And in Christ Christianity's been influenced by this too. You know, we're all waiting for the Star Trek moment in the future, some are. You know, the coming of the Jesus again. We're going to have a divine ethnic cleansing and then we're all going to be transported to some cloud cuckoo land we'll call the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> well, Jesus said, you know what? The kingdom of heaven is here now. In my teaching, in my words, in my works, and we, the people of the covenant not vested with a privileged position, but special responsibilities, must now make this offer to everyone to come in. And when we're in, we realize that we make manifest the presence of the kingdom in the here and now every time we do good works. Every time we're faithful to the kind of stuff that Isaiah and the other prophets of Israel have spoken of. And so you need to think about the presence of God as something that has always been here in the past, is with you now in the present, and will continue to be in the future. And when you live and act that way, you are the salt of the earth. You, are, you let your sh light shine before others. You become the transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. So you now become an instrument of creating micro-epiphanies in the world when you, are, when you do good things, you know, in whatever way we wish to understand that. So Jesus is making it clear. Don't sit around and say, well, we've got to be right with God because in the future this might happen. It's odd, isn't it? Because in this passage, Jesus said, I've not come here to abolish the law. But I have come here to fulfill the law. And so Matthew's gospel is about how in his words and in his works, we see this type of fulfillment and how we faithfully carry it on through history where God's redemptive work works. So give thanks this week for being uh, the light of the world. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Amen.